Hello, welcome to Defense Against the Dark Arts. I'm Paul Mill, and this is episode 25. This one is Informal Logical Fallacies. This will be a good one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I had previously described the difference between accuracy and precision, but uh, a perfect analogy has since popped into my head. I wasn't even thinking about it, but it's such a cogent analogy that I have to share it. Picture holding a garden hose. You're shooting water at a flower. The accuracy is how close you are to hitting the flower. Your precision is how tight or spread out your water stream is. Tight stream, highly precise. Spread out, low precision. Hitting the flower, accurate. Missing the flower, inaccurate. That's it. Your accuracy and your precision are two different things. So I think that's a that was a good analogy that I, I thought of that I thought, wow, yeah, that, that, that explains it more cogently, maybe. Is that a word? Ah, itchy nose. All right. So logical fallacies. Uh, we have a penchant to want to be right and to want to believe something, uh, not prove it, but just believe it. So I'm not saying this is what we all do. This is, we have this tendency to do that. If we don't try to prove things to ourselves, we certainly are not going to try to prove things to other people. So enter logical fallacies. What is a logical fallacy? It is an error in reasoning, reasoning that does not lead to the truth. So what's the definition here? Logical fallacy, a misconception resulting from a flaw in reasoning or a trick or illusion in thought that often succeeds in obfuscating the truth. We could sometimes make logical fallacies on our own with no coaxing from the outside because of sloppy thinking, or we can be exposed to logical fallacies from others that are intending to deceive us, or we can be exposed to logical fallacies by others who don't know any better and, you know, are arguing to win the argument at the cost of the truth. If your ideology is bogus and cannot withstand the critique of reason, this is the result you want. If you, uh, you want your useful idiots to get emotional and not to use critical thinking, not to argue with reason, but to get emotional and resort to logical fallacies because your ideology is fallacious, such as Marxism, communism, any of the irrational leftist isms or, you know, religion on the right. I don't like to say religion is a thing on the right because there are many uh, hippie Jesus freaks out there on the left. So, you know, it's a bit of a... I know this 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 leftist who has no problem pulling out logical fallacies in any conversation. You know, the, the straw man argument and whataboutisms and gets very emotional and angry when he experiences, I'm assuming he ex when he's experiencing cognitive dissonance, when I'm bringing up points, right, that he, he doesn't want to believe because he doesn't want to believe the truth. So when he sees this glimmer of truth in conversation, he recoils in anger. He doesn't want to believe it. It's, it's probably too much for him to face that he has been wrong for all these decades, especially about something that makes up a substantial part of his belief system, of his personality. He claims to be an atheist, but he's filtering his leftist ideologies through a religious schema. If, if he is what he claimed to be, he would be able to calmly debate his views and accept new evidence and be capable of changing his stance. But he is not. 
He embraces nihilism as per his communist conditioning. So what's the point? You know, there's nothing to live for. You might as well be a communist and kill off hundreds of thousands of humans, right? His character is too weak to face the truth. So he hisses at it like a vampire in the sunlight. He's so close-minded that he drinks the communist propaganda like it's a heroin-based elixir of youth. He should know better. He, he has intact reasoning skills, you know, about most other things. It's as if there's a walled-off area of reason in his mind that he will never enter. He is utterly unwilling to have a critical dialogue about his views without getting emotional and resorting to logical fallacies. The sad part is, <clears throat> I think he indoctrinated himself by not being critical about the crap he read. A long time ago, he gave me a bunch of his leftist books to read, and so I read them. I read them all. So, the, you know, there were some valid points and some truths and a lot of emotional assertions that were lacking evidence. You know, I read Marx's manifesto, and it made me feel sick. I didn't really have any uh, political stances at the time. It was a long time ago. I still don't really have firm ones now. Maybe I do. I don't know. But <laughs> this reading made me leery of leftists before I was even, you know, politically interested. It's like, wow, this is, wow, really? These people believe this garbage, right? It's, it's just as reading the Bible made me leery of churches and synagogues. So the, the, the last time I was talking to him, because he always uses the straw man fallacy, I was talking about the straw man fallacy, and he got upset and started using the straw man fallacy against me for talking about the straw man fallacy. <laughs> you know, I could, I had to laugh. You know, we, we all might resist admitting we're wrong at times. We all have the capacity to admit we're wrong. Probably the most powerful tool we have to build the, the strength of our character to be a decent human being is the capacity to admit we are wrong when we are wrong. So we've gone over some formal fallacies in earlier episodes with syllogisms. There's denying the antecedent and affirming the consequent. And we ventured down the rabbit hole of non-deductive reasoning where there is nothing provable. But if nothing is provable, how can we call a flaw in non-deductive reasoning, a logical fallacy. This is why we add the tag informal to logical fallacies, because non-deductive reasoning is not strictly logically valid. Informal logical fallacies are ways of reasoning that pretend to prove something they do not. I'll go over a few of the more common types, but when you start looking at them, you may not know what they're called, but you can still call them out. Naming and framing, you know, the fallacious is, is, is just a shorthand that makes the process more efficient, you know, quick. Hey, you're using the straw manner, you know. So when we are using non-deductive reasoning, reasoning that is impossible to prove something, we have to be very careful. Context, content, and audience are all important considerations and vectors of attack by the unsavory manipulator. There are factions that want to manipulate at all costs and have zero compunction, being dishonorable and intentionally using fallacies to deceive. They have no honor. They have no morals. They believe only in power and hierarchy. As a species, we all have the concept of hierarchy wired into our brains going back millions of years. Our 
lobster brain or <laughs> Jordan Peterson, right? Our, our modern brains have evolved many layers of more complex cognition since then. But these people are operating at the less evolved lizard brain below the gray matter, below the white matter, way down the brainstem. They operate down in the limbic system. And that is one of the reasons why they are so emotional. All the outer layers of higher cognition have atrophied from disuse. Marxism is therefore a symptom of mental impairment, cognitive cessation. <laughs> so it appears that when we're brainwashed or conditioned, we still have this bizarre detached way of using reason, the mental gymnastics to make our ideology still make sense to us in the face of contradictory evidence or perhaps just ignoring the evidence altogether. But objective reality does not care about mental gymnastics. The truth is still the truth. And we can see through their persuasive rhetoric and lies when we take a closer look. There are people who believe what they are arguing, even when they're wrong, right? This is very common. So they're not technically lying because they are not intentionally deceiving us. They're just misinformed, useful idiots, or they're just misinformed people who are wrong. They may not be useful idiots. A useful idiot means that you're being manipulated by someone else to be that way, right? That's the useful part. And uh, then there are people who know they're wrong. They're, they're trying to manipulate and deceive others with their lies. Both of these use logical fallacies. So we'll start with begging the question. Begging the question is a stupid name for what it is. Aristotle had 13 logical fallacies, and this was one of them. The literal translation of his name is petition the principles, which we have translated into begging the question. The definition of the word beg here is to evade or dodge or to take for granted without proof. Normally, we don't use beg in that context. Today, we mostly use the word beg to mean plead but not in this situation. Here it means to avoid. So we can remove begging and put the word avoid in there. So it's avoiding the question. So we could think of begging the question to mean avoid the question. What is the question that is being avoided? Well, the question is, and always will be, what is the proof? A begging the question fallacy is when the premise presupposes the truth of the claim. So there is no proof. It's just a sum, assuming the, the, the proof. Premise A assumes A is true. Therefore, A is true. That is the, the, the form of begging the question. A begging the question fallacy takes for granted what, is, what it is supposed to prove, supposed to prove. If we wanted to communicate unambiguously or more clearly, a better name for begging the question would be proof by assertion fallacy or taking for granted fallacy, some, some kind of a name like that. An example of begging the question or proof by assertion, if we could try to start that, uh, here's, you hear this all the time. White people are racist. Therefore, if you are white, you are racist. It's an assertion with no proof. It simply makes an assertion and then uses that assertion as proof for the claim right? Which is the assertion. <laughs> so it's clearly not sufficient to sway a critical thinker, 
but the masses are not critical thinkers. And if a manipulator makes a claim that a target wants to believe, they will agree sans evidence, sans proof. For those of you who don't speak French, sans means like without. <laughs> Begging the question or proof by assertion is a type of circular reasoning. And circular reasoning is a fallacy. So what is the difference between circular reasoning and begging the question? Well, it's, it's not really there's a difference. It's a, it's a form of it. But the claim in begging the question just repeats the premise. There is usually one point that is being asserted. Circular reasoning has two or more points and they prove each other. So it is slightly different, but it's a form of it. Begging the question is the simplest form of circular reasoning. Circular reasoning can be funny to those who pay attention. Premise A proves B and B proves A. Two points are argued which prove each other, where the premise is assumed to prove the claim. For example, gentlemen prefer blondes, said a gentleman, and he was a gentleman because he preferred blondes. This is circular not begging the question because it's arguing two points. The man was a gentleman is one of the points and that gentlemen prefer blondes is the other point and they are used as proof for each other. So there's two claims. Here's another example of circular reasoning fallacy of the circular reasoning fallacy that we you know, might hear from our, our globalist friends talking about the 99% versus their 1%. You are surplus population and therefore a burden to the planet. Because you are a burden to the planet, you are surplus population. The two claims that are attempting to prove each other is that you are surplus population and you are a burden to the planet. There are also suppressed claims in this one, such as the speaker has the authority to determine who's, <laughs> who is surplus and who is not, and even if that is a valid concept, which is another, you know, uh, another suppressed claim. <clears throat> as well as the planet cannot sustain you. And finally, there are too many people on the planet. These are all suppressed premises. So the format would be assumption, therefore claim, claim one as premise two, therefore premise one as claim two. You might need to write that one down. Uh, so chances are they won't be that obvious as these that, that example. They will use synonyms or, or statements with the same meaning to obfuscate their fallacious circular reasoning. There are many other variations of circular reasoning, but you get the gist. So sidebar, the concept of surplus population has always been and still is a factor of wealth. The wealthy 1% want to reduce the size of the surplus population. That's you, that's me, unless you're a billionaire but this has bad optics for them. So they're using the thing that makes them look the worst and spitting it to a racially divisive thing by asserting and deflecting and saying that whites consider non-whites surplus population in an attempt to get the surplus population, both whites and non-whites, uh, to be fighting amongst themselves. And, and not, and so they're, they're fighting and not paying attention to the 1%, the actual proponents of culling the poor and the poorer is anybody who's part of the 99%. So it, it smells of the Gupta brothers 
South African conspiracy. If you, for those of you who know that, it's there was a defunct British PR firm, Bell Pottinger, and, and they had these moves to create division and tension between whites and blacks in South Africa as a distraction to hide their corruption with the, the President Zuma's son, you know, billionaire. So they are the 1%. Could it be possible that they or some other billionaires like them would pull a similar play again? Could that be possible? (laughs) I'll leave that to you. If you want to get into the head of globalists, I can recommend that you read Karl Marx's manifesto and his ideas around surplus population and the reserve labor army and also Thomas Malthus's doomsday predictions by surplus population. You might get a little nauseous reading these things, but it kind of gives you, you see where their head's at, right? So both of these guys have been dead for over 150 years. So what have we done now? We've done begging the question and circular reasoning. Let's look at loaded and complex questions. I have seen people define complex questions as synonymous to loaded questions, but they're not. Going back to Aristotle's 13 logical fallacies, he has one of them called many questions. I don't know what he called it in Greek, but that's what we're told it's called, many questions. Aristotle's many questions is what I would define as a complex question fallacy. His many questions are just that a barrage of questions that may or may not be related to anything. This is a logical fallacy like all logical fallacies is because it does not prove anything, even though it's a tactic. It's a direct attack meant to distract and throw off, throw the listener off balance. The idea with many questions is that we humans have a limited ability to understand something. When a barrage of questions are thrown at us, we immediately try to think of the answer. And then when the questions are unexpected or unrelated, we have to try to take a beat to figure out what the, what the, how the question would fit into this context, which takes time, right? Meanwhile, they're throwing more and more questions at us. So we may be able to partially answer a question or we might lose our train of thought altogether. So what does this do? This allows the, the speaker to answer over us, to answer to give the answers we want or they want to their question to make us appear dumb and allow them to control the argument if you're not prepared for it. So the goal of many questions is confusion and distraction. A similar well-used and dishonorable tactic is the loaded question. Also sometimes called the complex question, but it is different. A loaded question is where if you answer the question, you're answering more than one thing and are affirming an assertion that they are making in the question. For example, do you support the white supremacist protest of lockdowns? So the responder cannot answer about the lockdown protests without affirming the fallacious claim that if you protest lockdowns, you're a white supremacist. This is the amoral and fallacious logic of the loaded question. It's loaded because they are adding the bogus insertions to try to trick you into affirming their suppressed implications, even though they're not really, well, yeah, they're suppressed implications. So manipulators will state a loaded question or a loaded assertion, and those who are duped or not prepared will buy into the suppressed implications and may even repeat them like mindless mockingbirds throughout the forest of whatever that movie was called. (laughs) 
So when we're facing it, we have to determine if it's a manipulator saying it or a useful idiot regurgitating it. You know, and all we can do is expose it. If it's a useful idiot, they will likely get emotional and just throw more fallacies at you. If it is a manipulator, they will seek to destroy your credibility and silence you. We all have a tendency to feed the monster. That is like, you know, the Trump derangement syndrome to spew insults regardless of what the person says or does because we don't like them. Feeding the monster should be avoided at all costs. It's a form of repetition that distorts your perception. We can do it to anyone or anything. We can even do it to ourselves for no real reason. Feeding the monster and loaded questions go hand in hand. If we're asking about someone, we might throw a nasty adjective before their name, which is both feeding the monster and loading the question. We should avoid doing both for our own benefit, and we should be leery when we see others do it. When we see it done by the news media or organizations, we should recognize it as intentionally deceptive propaganda because that they're professionals. They do know better. And for them to be doing that, they are intentionally loading and intentionally trying to deceive us. Loaded questions have great trickster value to get unsuspecting listeners to agree with something they don't actually agree with. So to review, we have, we've covered uh, begging the question fallacy, circular reasoning fallacy, many questions fallacy, uh, complex question fallacy, loaded question fallacy. You may find, you know, others who do not agree with my interpretations of the definitions, but that's just semantics. The concepts of these fallacies are what's important to comprehend and remember. The names, not so much. So what is often included is a, is a layer cake of fallacies and techniques. For example, using suppressed false premises or implied false claims that themselves have like second order suppressed claims and then using loaded questions. You know, this really sets up the pile of fallacy. Uh, this is the heart of modern propaganda and narrative management by the political establishment. A critical thinker needs to at least notice the onslaught and recognize what it is, especially if they agree with the propaganda. This is critical for you to still realize it's bogus, even if you agree with it or want to agree with it. While the political establishment has no membership card, the political establishment does include the news media, NGOs, PR firms, the money behind them, corporations, billionaires, and as well, you know, of course, as politicians. The goal, the number one priority of the political establishment in a parliamentary democracy or constitutional republic is to dictate public opinion. Okay, so I talked about the straw man fallacy a little earlier. There are many variants to the straw man fallacy. Sometimes an arguer will take a uh, will take your words and disinterpret them to ridiculous extremes and then argue against those ridiculous extremes. Pretty much any time someone puts a word in your mouth or words, <laughs> they're performing the straw man fallacy. For an example, this recent specific tax increase is wrong. The straw man reply. So you expect government services to pay for themselves. The original statement is not that all taxes are wrong, and they very well may be, but that the, the specific tax increases are wrong. The leftist is clearly arguing against a point the rational person did not make. 
<laughs> the result of a strawman argument is annoyance and to stop productive dialogue because the real man is, is an argument that they cannot refute or possibly even acknowledge. Those who seek to hide the truth do not want all kinds of questions being asked, especially by critical thinkers. And what's it take to be a critical thinker? Not too much. Just a little bit of reading, a little bit of thinking, right? So watching these videos will help, right? So a, a defensive tactic by the manipulator is to turn probing questions or reasoned debate into an unproductive altercation. This is similar to the whataboutism fallacy where the arguer does everything they can to not argue the point. So they bring up other points that currently are not being argued to try to change the subject. One cannot have a mature, grown-up dialogue with someone who uses these tactics, and that may be the point. The straw man is to make a reasonable claim an unreasonable one. The whataboutism is to change the subject and not even talk about the point. Another way to change the subject by a manipulator is to attack your character. The fallacious attack on the person instead of the argument is called the ad hominem. This is where the leftists and CCP's useful idiots start calling you a Nazi or a xenophobic racist for inquiring about the origin of a global pandemic. The goal is to try to shut you up and stop you from mentioning the point. The best defense in that case is to ignore the name-calling trolls. Sometimes the attacker will resort to ad hominem because they've fed the monster about anyone who would bring up the point perhaps as a result of external conditioning by the political establishment, or they are simply unhinged and lash out at everyone they disagree with. There's a related attack when, uh, when, when they accuse you of being upset when you are completely calm. I had a buddy, Vince, that always made me laugh. You know, at a lab, you know, when everyone's quietly working, he would, out of the blue, walk up and say, Why? Are you scared? <laughs> You'd be like, what? You know, the unexpectedness of his random question would always make me laugh. And he would just do these random questions that are like so bizarre. Like, it was funny. It was a good, it was a good break of the tension when you're anyways. So uh, this is kind of what leftists do when they ask, why are you getting emotional? You know, when you're, say you're in Twitter or whatever, and you're actually dead calm, but it's, it's not funny. These people are, they're sinister scum. Apparently, Ad hominems were ordered by a branch of the U.S. government to discredit UFO reporters in the 1950s because the lines of communication in their military establishment were being overloaded with calls. So they wanted to calm the hysterical masses. And so they just discredit. The order was to discredit people who see UFOs. Doesn't matter if they're actual Russian jets or whatever. It doesn't matter. Discredit them. So this worked very well. So anyone who claims to see a UFO today is reflexively labeled a crackpot by the rest of us. So these uh, ad hominems do have teeth in, in directing the zeitgeist. You know, I'm not saying that these UFOs or any UFOs that people have seen are from outer space. It just means unidentified object, which people should be reporting right? if there's spy planes and who knows what out there, right? So oddly enough, the first and most famous couple abducted were a black man and a white woman in New England. And yet the stereotype of abductees are rural white people. So I don't know how that came about, but whenever you hear an ad hominem, that is a fantastic indicator for you to look closer 
at the claim that the leftist or the person is upset about. You may be touching a nerve close to the truth. A variant of the ad hominem is the genetic fallacy, another stupid name. It should be called the fallacious appeal to motive, not the genetic, genetic fallacy. So we're familiar with cigarette companies, you know, funding research where their expert credentialed peer-reviewed scientists make claims such as there's no definitive proof that smoking cigarettes cause lung cancer. And there are also expert credentialed peer-reviewed scientists who claim there is a link between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer. Who's paying these researchers? Do you know their names? Specifically where their funding came from? Who's telling the truth? I don't know. We could speculate that it is plausible that smoking cigarettes cause lung cancer. This, you know, but is it black and white? No, it is not. There are anecdotes of people smoking for many decades and never get lung cancer. Am I saying smoking does not cause lung cancer? No, I'm not. I'm saying that it's plausible that it does, but I do not know for certain. And no one has convinced me by showing me proof that it does. I do think it's plausible that smoking cigarettes can increase your chances of heart disease and stroke. It's probabilities, and those probabilities are different for each person. And there are cultures, like the tribes of North America who've been smoking for presumably thousands of years. Are they more resilient to smoking due to natural selection? That would seem plausible, but I don't know. Has there been studies on it? Who paid for those studies? I don't know. But to try to discredit research or someone's argument solely based on their motive is a fallacy. We are implying that they are corrupt with no evidence. Is there corrupt science? Absolutely. The corrupt scientists that are collect, collecting money and, and doing EF, of course there is this. Do their motives prove that they are corrupt? Absolutely not. So long as they are acting in good faith, which is a pretty high bar for today's society. But their motives alone do not prove anything. Does their funding prove they are corrupt? No. But it's starting to smell funny at that point. Right? What about big oil funding? You know, their funding of their researchers. You know, they, uh, their credentialed experts pr- produced reports about lead additives and, and gas and, and lead in the ocean that were rebuked and countered by other scientists or big sugar, you know, funding research and PR projects that promote sugar products and condemn fats. Their motives do not prove that they are wrong. We cannot jump to conclusions. We want to. Do I trust the research? Probably not. But at least I know who they are and where their funding came from. Should I trust the lesser-known scientists who counter them just because I want to agree with them? I have no idea where their funding comes from or if they have an agenda. They may. They may not. I don't know. It's very tempting to jump to conclusions we want to and to condemn an argument solely because of motive. But that is a fallacy. There's a slippery slope where one might think, I'm not going to be a naive fool. Of course they're biased. But that is being a naive fool. So what can we do? Sort the different narratives into models of plausibility. And if it matters, research it. If it doesn't matter enough for you to research it, don't jump to a conclusion. Keep the models of narratives separate and file it under undetermined. 
Manipulators? No, we want to decide either or. But we must resist the wide, easy path of lazy guesses. We must keep to the straight and narrow path of critical thought and reason. Or else, you might as well just give up, learn to hate, embrace nihilism, and start voting left. That might be a bit of a, sl- <laughs> bit of a slippery slope fallacy. So, someone's motives do not prove they are wrong or even biased. We should be critical of all arguments, regardless of motive. We should be even more critical of arguments we agree with because we want them to be true. We should look for counterexamples and competing evidence for all arguments. There is a fallacy closely related to the generic fallacy, better known as appeal to motive, and that is the fallacious appeal to authority. When someone is an expert in a specific thing and they are treated as an expert or act like one in something that they are not, and their expertise is the premise for believing what they say, this is the fallacious appeal to authority. An example would be a planetary astronomer having any more insight into, say, politics than anyone else. So appealing to an expert in one field when arguing about another is is completely bonkers. This does not mean that we should not listen to someone because they're a planetary astronomer and they're talking about politics. They very well may have well-reasoned, cogent arguments on any topic, and it's their arguments that we can judge them by, not by the letters around their name. We should judge all arguments on evidence and reason, not on expert opinions who are not even experts on the subject. This brings us to the fallacious appeal from authority or the Dr. Jesus fallacy. This has become more evident in a world where there are evil forces for centralized control versus righteous decentralized authority. A force that embraces unnatural gatekeepers of knowledge whose goal is to suppress the truth. Throwbacks to the dark times of medieval priests and pre-internet. We're currently experiencing an enlightenment of society, decentralized authority of the people, but the black tentacles of centralized control do not want to relinquish power, and they are fighting an information war, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Not all experts in their field agree on everything, as we've seen time and time again in courts when prosecutors and defense teams have experts that contradict each other. This is irrefutable. Experts do not always agree. It is therefore a fallacy to assume an expert is correct just because they are an expert. I do not recommend or ever endorse using expert opinion as a premise for any argument. It is proven that they can be biased, wrong, or intentionally deceptive. So it is a fallacy to assume an expert's opinion is a valid premise for a claim. This is like a a reverse ad hominem. Instead of attacking the person, this fallacy claims who they are is sufficient to prove what they say. Therefore, this is the Dr. Jesus fallacy. We've all heard from many a Dr. Jesus this past year. So I'm sure you're familiar with this fallacy. So now what happens when you have a bunch of Dr. Jesuses? Dr. Jesus? What's the plural of Jesus? We have the fallacy of consensus or ad populum. Just because a group or a mob agree uh, 
you know, does not prove anything. She's a witch. Burner. The problem is the mob don't think that they're the mob. And a version of ad populum is fallacy of the consensus of the experts. As we've seen, it's a fallacy to believe an expert's opinion proves anything. So adding a bunch of experts in the mix does not change anything. A bunch of experts can experience ad populum the same as the rest of us. At one point, the consensus of experts believed the earth was flat. They believed Jacques Cinq Mars was a conspiracy theorist. They believed the lab leak hypothesis was a conspiracy theory. They burned Giordano Bruno at the stake for claiming there must be other planets and possibly life on them. That's the fallacy of the experts. There is a, a fallacy of false alternatives, better known as the either or fallacy. Uh, you're either with us or you're against, you're against us. You're either uh, an anti-racist or you're a racist. This is an old, well-known fallacy to critical thinkers. So anyone in academia who uses it today is either a complete idiot or they intentionally are trying to manipulate others. It's an oversimplification. So it's like the straw man. It puts words in your mouth, but only the words the manipulator allows. In reality, there are more than two options. It's a, uh, it's as rational as claiming you either went to the store or you murdered JFK. <laughs> you know, we didn't do other either. We didn't do either unless you're, you know, the CIA. <laughs> so speaking of the CIA, that brings me to the ad ignorantium fallacy or the no evidence fallacy. If there is no evidence of something claiming the lack of evidence as proof of it being false is a fallacy. The, uh, the opposite is also a fallacy. Uh, if there is evidence, the existence of evidence does not prove anything either way. Of course, this depends on the context, but the mere existence of evidence does not prove anything in itself. This includes evidence against something. The existence of evidence against something does not prove anything. It's, it's the context of what the evidence is that is important. This is close to phantom connections. You know, you can hear the, the, the bullshit reports right now. You know, the journalists, there is evidence that this person was involved in whatever conspiracy we want to smear them in, right? There may be evidence, so it'd be hard to sue the deceptive news outlets, but their rhetoric has a powerful influence on the weak-minded. Just so you know, the definition of evidence is anything presented in support of an assertion. So we are left to, to judge if that evidence is strong, if it's weak, or if it's completely invalid. Evidence alone is not proof, but evidence can, you know, prove something if it's strong, if it's strong evidence, it can, but evidence, the existence of it doesn't prove anything. The literal interpretation of evidence is being used as the natural interpretation. This is a form of deception. So if evidence is being mentioned with no specifics, you can and should assume that the source is bogus and they are trying to manipulate you. I've heard many propagandists say there is no evidence about X when in fact there is evidence. They never get charged. They never get in trouble. 
So this is an expression the political establishment abuses daily, right? And then there's the, the, the slippery slope fallacy. We talked about it a little earlier here. It's, uh, it's when reasonable connections are stretched beyond reason. It's like the straw man argument, but a chain of connections between or being exaggerated instead of a single point being exaggerated. An example would be uh, pornography leads to sexual assault or small government leads to anarchy. You know, they might be even put some points in between there to try to connect the dots, but they are, uh, <laughs> they are exaggerated beyond reason. They can be irrational. They can be non sequitur leaps that make zero sense. And a lot of people just don't really know that makes that okay. I believe it (laughs) really. Whoa. Right. So we have the, the fallacy of equivocation or the fallacy of ambiguosity. I can never, anyways, which would be, uh, using words that have multiple meanings that are not equivalent. Uh, an example would be bread is better than nothing. Nothing is better than pizza. Therefore, Bread is better than pizza. The phrases, uh, you know, have different meanings, which are being disinterpreted, interpreted, interpreted by the person making the claim. The fallacy of equivocation can also include selectively excluding terms from a fallacious interpretation. They can give a literal answer that is incomplete, which is intentionally being deceptive, which is lying. Here's an example. Say a cop pulls somebody over and he says, how much did you drink? And the driver says, I only had two beers. When she actually had two beers and four martinis, she is trying to not lie by using a fallacious interpretation. The question was not how many beers did you drink? And there is no natural interpretation of the question in which drink only means beer and not martinis. So that is the fallacy of equivocation. She redefined the word on the fly. She redefined drink to mean beer, which is batshit crazy. So in politics, George Bush defined torture to not include waterboarding. Bill Clinton defined sexual relations as not including fellatio or, you know, the whole cigar thing. The, the Canadian prime minister doesn't bother defining an, what an ass grope is other than claiming she experienced it differently, which is true. He groped her ass with his hand and she had her ass groped by a creepy pervert. She did indeed experience it differently. So he's saying something that's literally true, but he is disinterpreting the, what the, this is, this is the fallacy of equivocation. So, Then there are all the appeals, the appeal fallacies, appeals to emotion, appeals to force, appeals to whatever. They are all fallacies. There's also the fallacious fallacy, which is a good one to know. It's the idea that just because someone is using a fallacy, a logical fallacy, doesn't prove what they are saying is wrong. So there are a million, there are a million fallacies. A, A complex one that progressive hate mongers created is the Martin Bailey fallacy, which is a schizophrenic version of the straw man. They argue point A, which is false. And if you catch it, they'll retreat and claim they're only arguing point B, which is lies on top of lies, deception on top of other deceptions. I think that's sufficient for this episode. Next episode, I'm going to be diving more into the heart of the beast and talk about persuasion and manipulation. Until then, 
Take care. Thank you.